Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. On today's podcast, we have the founder of TalkDesk, co-founder to be exact, Christina Fonseca. Christina Fonseca is currently also the venture partner of Indico Capital Partners based in Portugal. She's got a fascinating story, so we want to hear it from the very beginning. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much, Carlos, for having me. Let's start off with the beginning. You studied uh, in the best university in Portugal, technical, and in a major that is probably one of the, the, the ones that has shaped our lives the most, telecommunication and network engineer, because the foundation of our entire internet culture is based on that. And I know that you shared with me that you started a company whilst you were studying, which led to about three years of experimenting with uh, two companies, Bouncy and Feet. Maybe walk us through that early journey, uh, starting from why you chose to study that to why you decided to start these companies and what ultimately happened to them. I mean, going back, uh, the reason why I got into that degree, I think, was because I was curious. That's a characteristic of an entrepreneur. So at that time, I was already uh, very curious with the Internet. Uh, I think like that degree, degree is kind of the engineering of the Internet. Uh, so I went into an ex- exploration mode. It was it was uh, super interesting. I loved it. Like there were a lot of discussions that there was no role model that studied telecommunications and networks. But still, I was super happy that I went to that degree. And that then the entrepreneurial journey starts uh, with me and Tiago, which became my co-founder at TalkDesk at a boring class, uh, exploring like ideas, like interesting stuff to do on the side and make some money uh, because we were poor students. So Veep was the result of that. It was, I think it's it's the first idea that uh, anyone that wants to create a startup uh, tries to do, which is a, a tutoring platform for high school students because they are expensive by default. Students don't have a lot of money. Uh, and basically we built a platform to digitize that. It was quite difficult to make it possible because we had to uh, hire teachers to produce video content. We would review all that. So it took us three years to, to, I mean, two years probably to put that in the market and then one year more during which we were learning how to attract users, uh, to iterate on pricing, how much money can we make. So that was our first experience. And there were lots of lessons we took from there. First, we started in a market that was small, which was Portugal. So all the videos were in Portuguese, of course, adapted to the Portuguese curriculum. The target market was terrible because students don't have money and don't want to study, don't have money to pay. Being engineers, we thought the, the we just had to to be Mark Zuckerberg style, develop something, put it on the internet, people people would come and pay. And that was totally not the reason, not, not the way it worked. So we ended up having to learn a lot about online marketing. Uh, we even at some point redesigned the entire platform because we thought, oh, it's not beautiful enough. So there were a lot of things we learned. I mean, it's not about being amazingly designed. Uh, it's very important, but the user experience, the target market, uh, the value you offer, uh, if you can reach your customers or not, if your value proposition is there, that's what matters at the end. So that was the, the first experience uh, that taught us a lot of what we applied after. 
so Bountley came after that. Bountley was a uh, kind of a feature uh, for for uh, the Amazon email system. And the reason why we developed that was was because at some point we we and and between both we tried to launch another business that didn't work in an area in online marketing that we didn't know anything about. And then we just we just went back to do things that we understood. Uh, so Bouncely was a tool for developers that would complement an Amazon service. Uh, everyone wanted to use Amazon to to send emails because they were they were um, cheaper, but you couldn't clean your marketing lists. So we built a tool for that. We would charge nine dollars a month, super simple, generate recurring revenues. We knew Amazon would kill that, but in the meantime, we needed to make some money. So these were the two uh, uh, important projects that led to TalkDesk. Basically, every time we would try, someone would reach out to us, usually via email or chat. We didn't know who that person was. So if I was, uh, if someone emailed me, I would check in my database. If if that person contacted me before, if it was registered, if it was a customer, I would check in my billing system if that person was paying me. I would check like on the internet to see if that person had a business, was just someone curious. Uh, and we thought, okay, how come everything is in the cloud, but there's no tool in the cloud that tells you everything about who is contacting you. And that became the idea for TalkDesk. So I would say these two businesses were, everyone thought we were playing, doing nothing, like trying, no one understood that we were trying to create a company. And these two experiences ended up being very, very important for our journey. Yeah, no, that, those are very good stories. And I wanted to just ask a little bit of more detail on um, Veep, on some of the lessons that you had about customer acquisition. Mm-hmm. Is there any, any, any anecdote you want to share about, I know there's a lot of companies that are probably listening to this that are either content-led companies or that are looking for customers through paid channels. Any points you want to make there for any companies that are listening that are like uh, direct-to-consumer or B2C? So I think at, at that point, we were noobs. I mean, we were engineering students. Uh, uh, we, we, we didn't even know. Uh, I learned a lot about online marketing at that time. I started writing a blog. So I was very active on, on student, student forums. Uh, I tried to test uh, 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 all, the, all the channels that are now part of the, of, uh, the playbook of any tech company. But I think what we didn't do at the beginning was to try to understand if that market wanted to pay and perform some tests uh, before uh, uh, we developed the product, which was more than two years. Uh, a lot of coordination, a lot of hours, a lot of videos recorded, edited, uh, reviewed. Um, so I think the main lesson here is that we developed a product for a market that didn't necessarily want to pay or wanted that. Uh, although we we sold, uh, of course, we 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 sold some subscription subscriptions, but um, for us that was the main lesson. Uh, uh, the market was too small. It was Portugal. It was, uh, 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 we didn't test any AdWords before, just after. Uh, so that was, that was the main lesson. Hmm. Well, let's, let's move on to TalkDesk then, because when you look at what you guys are doing today, it's a massive operation. And when you look at trust in a, a product and a company, you could see where today, if you were a um, company that had uptime service agreements, TalkDesk would seem like a very... Uh, solid solution to incorporate. But 
early days, especially for enterprise sales, it isn't that easy. So maybe walk us through those early days where you, you understood you were onto something from your experience with Bouncely. You were, you were onto something because you were solving your own problem, but you're going after a customer, which is fundamentally different than, uh, you know, the type of customer you're dealing with Veep and one that had probably higher expectations. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, totally. Uh, um, I would say one of the, if, if you're, if you are in, in the enterprise sector, I would say one of the most difficult things is actually to gain trust from um, your users. Um, and I would say the only way is to uh, like develop, like find five early adopters, uh, develop close relationships with these companies and be always there for them. Uh, in the beginning, we would be, um, I, th- I, I, one of the things that made Talkdesk, what it is today, was the fact that we started globally. Um, and and when I say this, uh, me and Tiago, we went to the US, we did 500 startups. And after that, Tiago decided to stay there and I came back to Portugal. So we were on 24 hours, basically. Um, and we had this internal rule that any customer email or request had to be answered in five minutes. Um, and I think this was what made companies trust us. I'll, I can give you an example. For example, Dropbox. Uh, we have this this cool story with Dropbox. Uh, the team in the US they evaluated Talkdesk at some point, but we were so, we were a very small startup. No one knew, and and they went with a big player. I don't blame them. Like budget was not an issue. Uh, they just went with a, with a, with a safer solution. When they had to create a, a call center, a customer service t- team in, in Europe, they had two options, go with, go with a big pro- provider and probably spent like six months at least uh, trying to get phone numbers in all the, the, the European countries, or they would at least try to go with a startup. And if it worked, they knew right away. Um, and they said, okay, let's try the startup. They say it's five minutes. Uh, uh, let's see if it works. If it works, problem solved. We don't, we don't need to engage in a, in a long and, and uh, um, painful process of dealing with telecom providers. And they did. And most of the things worked uh, as expected. But then there's always, uh, because we were still doing a lot of product development, they would have questions. They would need help configuring certain things. Uh, and every time they would call, we would pick up the phone. We would like stop everything and 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 try to work with them uh, to improve our product with their feedback. Um, and that was what what uh, what made them trust a startup. And then it just built on top. Uh, but there were stories of me having to wake up people at 5 a.m. on a, on a Saturday because a server broke, and suddenly Tiago is calling me and and. I sleep very well, so it's it's quite difficult to wake me up in the middle of the night. And then he has to call my house, and everyone wakes up, and there's a server that has a problem, and there's no other way uh, uh, um, that you can create a company other than fixing things uh, and being there for the customer. So, so we have you, this. You, you brought up something that I've heard different points of view on, which is how much work to do on behalf of a large customer. So the temptation, of course, when you have a flagship customer is to bend over backwards and do what you've described. But then another point of view is that you would, 
you should stay away from those kinds of customers and just go for replicable customers, ones that are self-provisioned or easier to manage rather than having to optimize uh, around them. What, what What's your view on that? Mm-hmm. I, I totally, I totally get uh, uh, the question. Uh, also, because I don't believe you should uh, develop products for certain customers. But if a customer is asking for something that's part of your vision and that you know you need to develop, sometimes that's just an excuse to accelerate that. Uh, and it, and it's it's a prioritization um, question instead of uh, a roadmap question. Um, we also made the mistake of trying to develop developing certain features for for a user and in this case uh, it was a company that said no i'll pay extra i'll bring this amount of users uh, uh, like i really want a user product um, and we were tempted by that and what happened at the end was that that customer um disputed all the charges uh, i mean i think that it was probably after two years that customer disputed all the charges sued us we had to go to court it was a, 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 a like drama complete drama for no reason because we broke those rules of being focused in developing a product uh, that we believed in and and that that matched our vision um so i don't advise any company to 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 develop product for for a specific customer but if we are talking about a customer that will help you to get trust uh, from from the rest of the world, um, and and the requests really match your roadmap and and what you want to develop, that might be a way to accelerate. But mm-hmm. I understand there's a there's a thin line uh, between both sometimes, and you need to 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 use your your best judgments to to combine both. Yeah, fair enough. So let's go through your sales sales process, sales lessons. I think one of the things that a lot of enterprise uh, startups struggle with early days is building up that funnel. So you talked about how to build trust and you, you shared an anecdote about really excellent customer service in order to build that trust. But how did you get those conversations in the first place? I mean, getting into these relationships is incredibly hard. Building it into your pipeline, having the right sales team, well, of course, early days, it's you, but you know, as you scale up, so what, what advice and what ideas, uh, do you have to share with, um, any, any new founder tackling an enterprise SaaS business? Mm-hmm. Um, we have this, we have this, this story that we didn't invest a lot in, in, in marketing, uh, until we were like kind of a more or less solid business in terms of, uh, uh, repeatable, uh, we had a repeatable machine. Um, and I think the important part is that in the early days, we looked at, we were trying to do some experiments to avoid the failures we, with, with, uh, uh, market and, and marketing from, from Veep and Bouncely. Um, and we realized that a NetWords click in the call center market would cost around $35. And for us, this was impossible to, to, to compete with. Um, so we decided this inbound marketing, uh, uh, strategy and, and the entire HubSpot philosophy was, was quite new. Um, and we said, since we can't compete with, uh, online marketing, let's try develop a content strategy from the beginning and at least developed a lot of content for this industry 
where I mean, you don't go online to read things about call centers or <laughs> or or related because because uh, everything was quite boring. So we tried to add this angle of uh, transforming this old school industry into something that's uh, 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 interesting, um, and we would vlog like almost every day. I don't remember the exact schedule at the beginning, but at some point it became every day. So me and Tiago, we would write uh, pieces of content during the the weekends. Um, then uh, our designer would uh, uh, put that and, and, and transform that into blog posts um, and also eBooks. So we produced a lot of different content. And another thing we did early on was to hire a video, like a motion graphics person. Um, so we developed a lot of videos, uh, high quality, super impressive, that made companies think we were way more mature than uh, we were in reality. Um, so with this content strategy from the beginning, we were perceived as being super uh, serious company <laughs> when we were still building things. Okay, but even with a very polished content strategy, you still have the the challenge of getting into the right person in an organization, mm-hmm. right? So content strategy can sometimes justify your existence mm-hmm. because people can do a Google search. They're like, oh, look at all these interesting things. Mm-hmm. These people are very polished. But a lot of organizations, enterprise sales organizations, um, have multiple multiple buyers right there's the mm-hmm. person who might look at the product and think this would be great there's the person who signs off on his paycheck or her paycheck then there's a person who's you know CSO or CTO or whatever mm-hmm. who might have a view on the thing and then there's a the CEO who might have to make the budgetary decision and so how did you map out the the people that make the the decisions such that the content was relevant for them but also that you could help that customer uh, get everybody else over the line, or did you not tackle those kinds of complex it, customers? No, it was not. Yeah, exactly. Because because uh, uh, at that time we were still uh, uh, in the SMB space, um, but we had uh, so for example we had companies that in one year started with four agents and went to an hundred in a year. Um, I think we were also part of a transition of. Uh, uh, web uh, uh, internet companies that really needed a, a support operation and they had nowhere to go. Uh, so we had this advantage of being the first in the market. Uh, uh, of course, now we have a, a super complex senior sales teams, sales team, multiple VPs. We moved up market considerably. Uh, but in the beginning, like people would come to us and then it was just a matter of showing value. So we didn't have, not everything was as structured uh, uh, as you might think. Um, of course, we, we, we had, uh, in some organizations, we had to navigate, we had to get approval from different people, but it was usually either the operations manager or the head of customer service that was in charge of, of finding the solution for these phone support uh, uh, needs. Uh, and we would be the default one. And then the product was there. We were there. We would like do demos, calls, help them, uh, um, set up the system, uh, like be kind of the, the advisor for this call center, uh, technology that's quite, uh, I mean, complex. Um, so we, our customers, a lot of them were from the San Francisco tech space. 
uh, now it's 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 very different because we went up market and now I mean there's a there's a, a sales proper sales structure in place uh, dealing with regions uh, segments uh, there's also some some vertical uh, uh, specialization uh, but in the beginning it was a little bit more more chaos uh. <laughs> well the if if you were to look at the trajectory that you guys have had, I mean, it's amazing. What, what what's the number of people that you have at the moment? Uh, more than five hundred. We hit five hundred, uh, maybe less. I think last month. Yeah. Um, so a little bit more than five hundred over six offices. So if you look at that that whole customer segmentation, uh, customer service support function, and you look at all those things that we just talked about, including sales. Um, and we map that out according to the different growth stages of employee counts. What would you say the, the, the volume has been for when you've noticed massive inflections? Like what has been the turning points in terms of staff or revenues or whatever you want to talk about that has been the biggest inflection points for you? Mm-hmm. Um, so we were, I think one of the biggest lessons related with that is that in the beginning, we were kind of afraid of growing. Um, we were we were trying to be an American company, but we were very Portuguese, so we were afraid of scaling. Uh, we were we wanted to uh, uh, make sure we have uh, 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 customers before we hired people to do uh, uh, um, uh, functions that were very natural to have in the company. So for th- around three years, we were very under the radar. Uh, I think uh, uh, people at 500 thought we were dead because we would just, <laughs> we were just in the cave building product and working with customers. Um, so for three years, we were seven people, which is nothing. Uh, we would do pretty much everything. It was almost all engineers. We didn't hire fast enough. Um, but at some point, we were making more money. So when we raised, we raised 450K, um, in the beginning, uh, right after the accelerator, during the accelerator, actually. And then uh, we raised two and a half years later, uh, we raised $3 million. Uh, and between that time, we were a team of seven people, super focused. And when we raised those $3 million, we have our, our uh, pre-seed round in the bank because we were making a lot of money. Um, so an inflection point was uh, when we raised that three million round, looking around and thinking we need help because we are we are we don't really know what to do what to do next. We knew, but we needed someone to 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 push us to move in that direction. Um, so that round was led by Jason Lemkin, uh, which kind of forced us in in a good way, of course, to hire a VP of Sales, VP of Marketing. Um, and then we became, we grew into a, a little bit more professional um, and things were going so well because after the product is there, you put marketing and sales together, uh, customers start coming, like the machine j- j- just just works uh, uh, at, a, at, a, at a different scale. Um, so that was an inflection point. And because things were going so well, we raised around one year after of 20 21 million dollars uh and that was another inflection point meaning in 2015 2015 we went from 30 people to 150 
which was chaos, totally. Uh, so those were the two important points in in our journey. Um, but let, let me try I to was, unpack that one a little bit more. I, so if you look at them from the point of view of what the money enabled you to do, it allowed you to grow really quickly and to amplify your success. But you mm-hmm. as a you as a as a leader, you must have started to feel a little bit out of your depth at, at some point because mm-hmm. you felt you didn't know people by name. You you might have now had to delegate hiring to other people and all the responsibility of additional funding. Mm-hmm. Maybe you walk us through in those two inflection points. What was the transformation that you went through? What did you do to prepare yourself in order to deal with that? How did you, how did you manage that process of evolving the person of Christina Fonseca into mm-hmm. becoming and, and upscaling yourself? I like the, it's 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 uh, uh, it's a personal journey, right? So I think I had to compliment a lot uh, speaking with other founders and people that was uh, uh, going through the same or similar experiences, uh, because you're always questioning if the ideas you had to solve certain problems were the right ones or not. Um, and I think the only way you can you can uh, make confident decisions is to to like try to get. Uh, 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 input from people around you that went through the same. Um, and then it's just like trying to pay attention to things and speak with people. Uh, I remember that I had doubts, but people around me, they had doubts as well. So every time uh, I remember, so if I would go away to the US, spend two or three weeks there, when I came back, there's a lot of assumptions that people make regarding so many things. And unless you speak to them, and try to see where their doubts come from. Uh, you, you can take measures to 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 align everyone. So for me, um, that was interesting. I remember around thirty people. I thought my role my role was to be a psychologist <laughs> because because you you start dealing with drama. There's drama. There's there's people. Uh, 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 and, and in the beginning, the team was all Portuguese. Then you start having sales and marketing in the US. Suddenly, no one understands what's going on at the other side. So people feel confused. So at 30 people, I, I thought, okay, now my role is to be a psychologist and, and make people, enable people to do a great job and, and, and not feel um, doubts about the company, the strategy, not feel bad because they, they, they don't understand everything that's going on anymore. Um, and then when we, when we were... Uh, close to 150 people uh, uh, transitioning to to that mature company. It was, I mean, you had to hire so many people. You had to trust them. They would do a good job. Uh, you had to enable them because suddenly you hire this super senior manager. You're not supposed to tell this manager what to do. And, and it's also uh, uh, transitioning from being an operator to being a manager. Um, that was fun. Uh, um, so, I mean, it was, there were a lot of, a lot of, I have a lot of stories and, and a lot of different things. And at that time in Portugal, uh, there was an additional challenge, which was to hire or attract man- managers and leadership that understood product, um, that worked at a tech company and that were aligned with, with our way of working. Um, we, we struggled to relocate some people from the outside. Uh, it was difficult to find them in the local ecosystem. Nowadays, that has changed, uh, but at the time, it was it was quite tough. 
Um, so, so I had to grow a lot to, to replace those people or to potentially uh, delay those hires. Uh, some processes took like many, many months. If, if, you know, when you look at a lot of the stories that founders tell on a stage or on a panel, it sounds for the most part like the bulk of the, the journey was a success and without many really dark moments. And the reality is from having interviewed enough founders is that there's a lot of dark moments. And mm-hmm. some of those dark moments come from running out of money. Some of them come from uh, people you've hired or your relationship with your co-founders. Maybe if we just focus it uh, on the question of hiring and of growing a team and managing a team, what are the dark moments that you had in building up a team that you would do over again and maybe share so that people who are listening could avoid that mistake? Like, I, I think like, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go and tell you probably what, what um, other founders do. And um, sometimes you hire a person. We had, we had a couple of instances where we hired uh, someone that we realized was not, was not the perfect fit for the role. Um, and the team didn't like that person. So there was the, the, the uh, not everyone was aligned and it took us a, a while to, to fire that person. Um, so that ended up costing us uh, a lot of effort, energy, uh, and frustration. Um, and we have another, so going back a little bit, because this, this is more of an early stage story also related with hiring. Um, we hired uh, a person to 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 be the head of a of a, a department um, that was recommended by someone that that we respected a lot, but that person was clearly not the right person for the job, um, and like that person was there because we needed someone, and then we were desperately trying to hire, but no one wanted to work for that person, um, so we we couldn't hire anyone everyone someone would come to the office to interview that person was there and 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 people would think like i don't want to work here i don't want to work with this person um so those mistakes you, you really need to fix them um otherwise they will cost you uh, um a lot more money and and energy um so yeah i like hiring for us was always and i think it's in Christina, every you you very diplomatically gave an, <laughs> a, an arm's length example but i was hoping that maybe you might be willing to share, okay, maybe not that question, but maybe share a moment where you really questioned, I mean, maybe, maybe the, the moment has now resolved itself. So, you know, it's not, it's not something so private, but, you know, just to, to humanize that journey and maybe we can open it up, not just to HR, but any other element of the company moment where you reflected and thought crap, you know, like, I wonder if I'm going to get over this and, and it's, it's a, a flaw, but, you know, but then you did. Like, you know, I'm very positive. So, so I always thought things would, would, would be fixed. Uh, so I remember this, this time where I think the company is probably around 30 people, maybe. I, I, I spent a couple of time in the States when, when I came back because so many things were, were happening at, at the other side, as, as, as the early employees would call it. Um, when I came back, there were rumors that the Portuguese office was going to close, for example. And there was, you know, like you feel that the office is on fire uh, uh, and people make a lot of assumptions about, OK, no, now they're hiring engineers at the other side. They are going to close the office. Uh, uh, we are all going to be fired. So that was a little bit of too much drama with the team. I mean, 
it's it's stressful to deal with these. Uh, but again, you need to speak with people, try to understand where things come from. I mean, I, I could tell you a lot of stories. So, for example, when we when we raised the 21 million round, we had, of course, uh, like there were bugs, there were things we had to fix, there were more customers we could handle, probably. And everyone was calling us, congrats, guys, you're the best, amazing round. And I remember going home at 11 p.m. and eating a piece of pasta that had that I had in the fridge. And everyone suddenly thought we were millionaire, super successful, and our life was so miserable. I don't think I'm telling you uh, anything new uh, from your, your conversations with founders because all startups are the same. Um, it's part of the journey. And it's very, it's very, it's very special uh, working with a team that's, that's there uh, as, the, as the early talk test team was to answer customers in five minutes. All right. So maybe, so we, maybe sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. No, so I said if we shift back to the fundraising, because you were sharing us some stories about your fundraising, you know, you, you guys have been very successful in, in fundraising from across Europe as well as the U.S. Why don't you it walk It was actually us- all U.S. All U.S., really? I thought all you had US. some local uh, European angels. No, 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 no. Oh, yeah, we, had, we have an angel from the U.K., but it was, he got in when we were at 500. So it's, it's but yeah, so, so we raised that money being in the U.S. Well, why don't you walk us through lessons you've learned about raising across all these different rounds um, and maybe what early conversations might have looked like uh, from the very onset, especially having had already some relationships in Europe, and then how you thought about fundraising and what what mistakes you think founders make that, that you might have made or you wish they would do less of. Mm-hmm. For us... The key in, in, in all the rounds was that we had a business that was working. So for us, fundraising was really what, uh, by definition, uh, VC money is for, which is to accelerate. Uh, but we had the base already in place. So for us, fundraising was, like, was not a, 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 like a, a ter- terrible experience. Uh, fundraising is hard. Um, but if you have the right metrics, if you have a business, if you have the seeds and you can show some traction to investors, then you'll be in a, in a, in a power position. And that was what ended up uh, uh, happening to us, at least in the early stage. I mean, uh, uh, a $100 million round is a little bit different. Um, but in the early stages, up until Series A, it was all metrics proving that we were growing, we have a solid business, uh, we are executing. Um, like I tell founders all the time, like, look, because uh, 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 in the beginning you can tell the vision a little bit, but at some point it becomes a lot execution. Uh, so if you focus on that, if you have a good product team, if you have uh, uh, good customers, if the machine is working, that's the best you can do for fundraising. Then fundraising is a is uh becomes easier i'm not saying it's easy because it's not but it becomes easier and and i think uh, uh the fact that we 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 raised from from us investors was because we were in portugal but then we did 500 startups in the us we stay there so we never raised local money um and then i mean it's 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 just us from from that perspective if you if, right now we're we're going to talk about a little bit your current venture partner role and 
the, the lessons that you've taken from your journey and how you apply them to the venture capital world. But before we um, talk about that, uh, I want to kind of cap the, the talk desk journey. And, you know, you, you've spent quite a bit of time building up an amazing team of, you know, 500 plus people. And you, you clearly feel that there's a need for a fund to address a part of the, the, the market that is not being addressed. So maybe you can walk us through that realization of wanting to work with, with, um, Stefan Moraes and Ricardo on this new project and who it's for, um, and why that transition, uh, to work with obviously still involved in talk tasks, but, but involved in, with Indico. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the story, the story is, is, uh, is a little bit different. Um, in 2016, I was very, very tired because building, building talk desk, uh, was a, was a, I would do two shifts every day, the Portuguese and the US one. So I was, and, and you worked super hard because you believe that's the only way. Uh, uh, I mean, it's not super hard. I worked extra, extra hard. Uh, because you believe that's the only way you can make a, a company successful. And then the company is working very well. And you look ahead and you think, okay, nothing is going to change in the next 10 years because this company is going to be around and it's keep, it's going to keep growing. Um, and my life was totally unsustainable. So I decided I had to take a break. Um, and, and I left like my, my daily operations role and I decided to study a little bit. Um, and then people like entrepreneurs uh, from from the local ecosystem were reaching out to me all the time. And I was having coffee after coffee after meeting. Um, I started working with some companies more closely. Um, and I never thought I wanted to work as, as a VC uh, because I thought, no, I'm too young. Like, I think, I think I still have a couple more, more years because b- before I moved to the, to the VC side of things. Uh, but that was what I was doing informally, working with companies early stage and helping them. Um, and then Stefan and Ricardo, like we, we knew each other from before. And, and I know they were, they, they, they were starting, starting to think about the funds. Um, and they were trying to, to tease me to join them. Um, and only when I realized I could help companies and do what I was doing, but in a formal way, I decided, okay, like this is, this really makes sense. So it was more me understanding that like, this was what made, made sense than a strategic move, uh, to create the fund that's actually the only proper VC fund in, 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 in Lisbon now in Portugal. Um, there's clearly a gap in the market. I mean, it's it's unbelievable that there's amazing universities, amazing talent, uh, uh, lots of entrepreneurs, both uh, uh, like Portuguese people, but also people moving here to start their own companies. And then there were no professional investors. Of course, you have corporates that play an important role, but it's different. Uh, so that was my story of 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 being involved with with Indico. Um, and we are, I mean, we, we are, uh, I think we are really leaving a mark in, in the Portuguese ecosystem, uh, being, uh, uh, focused on helping early stage entrepreneurs. We do from C to series A, 
uh, uh, to start their companies and to and to repeat the talk desk story and other success stories uh, uh, from Portugal. So controversial question, uh, and you're not allowed to hide behind sector focus. Do you think Indica would have invested in talk desk early days back in back in the day? Yes, sir, or no? Yes. So uh, actually, Stefan tried, <laughs> but we were we were already uh, in Series A, and 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 I mean our our US investors didn't didn't leave a lot of room for that. Uh, but actually, Stefan and Ricardo, uh, if I tell you the numbers, I'm sure you'll be surprised. Um, there's 13 companies that raised a Series A or above in the last 10 years uh, in Portugal, or I'm, I'm including like Talkdesk, Farfetch, OutSystems, all the ones that are probably are not headquartered in Portugal, but but they have Portuguese founders and, and clearly have Portuguese roots. Um, there's 13 companies in the last 10 years, which kind of tells you uh, how early stage the ecosystem is. Um, some of those companies became quite successful and Stefan and, and Ricardo invested directly and indirectly in nine. Uh, Talkdesk is the 10th um, and three of them are very recent. So they would definitely uh, have invested in Talkdesk if, if uh, uh, our investor base uh, was a little bit uh, more open, I would say. I mean, and it, it was just the, the way it was. Because we were the first ones to go to the U.S., we were the first uh, company to 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 raise um, VC money uh, um, in the U.S., and that sh- our trajectory is a little bit different from 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 the other companies. Most of them uh, started locally and then went abroad. Yeah. Okay. So if if we take your experience from day one, Bouncely and Veep, and then Talkdesk, and now Venture Partner, and you look if you reflect on your personal journey and, and think of the attributes that define you today as a, as a founder and now obviously venture partner. Do you think that your ability to assess people in that journey early on is what makes you um, good at what you do right now? And if so, walk us through what you look for in a founder early days today to see whether or not they have the capability to be the next Christina Fonseca? Mm-hmm. What I typically look for uh, is actually progress. So uh, if, a, if a founder comes to me and says, look, I have this amazing idea, um, either you see that they are making amazing progress or if if you are not sure, if if you think something is missing, if 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 you feel uh, they, they they you want them to test something or you ask them a couple of questions, I expect them to come back to me in in one two two weeks a month, and I want to see a lot of progress in that in that time frame. You know, like I want to see um, they are hustlers. Uh, uh, I want to see they are very positive. And they really believe they can they can execute the vision. Um, so so I think progress ends up summarizing that uh, a lot. I mean, if 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 a company is doing something, if they are doing experiments, it's not they are they are going to get everything right at first. Uh, but if they can move fast enough and iterate, then they, I'm sure they will get somewhere. Um, so it's a lot of combination about team and then 
uh, how fast they can move, how, how, how quickly they, they make experiments. Um, but with two or three conversations, you can get that very well. And do you, do you believe some of the myths that they, uh, that you hear about, um, teams? Do they need to be, uh, you know, teams versus sole founders, teams based in, uh, core geographies or they can be anywhere? Do you have any, any myths that you'd like to break? And maybe in, in addition to that question, what do you think is broken with, with European venture? If you think it's broken? Um, so on the on the meets side, uh, there's there's a lot of theories about uh, one of it is solo founders, and we we we've closed a couple of investments uh, to investments with solo founders. There's nothing wrong with that. Of course, there's these advantages. Of course, you need to help these people uh, get uh, a very good team to help them in the journey, and it's going to be lonely for them. But we don't have we don't have uh, uh, rules. Uh, another important one that people people talk about uh, a lot is couples. Oh, I don't invest in couples. Uh, me and Tiago, we were a couple when we started TalkDesk. Uh, so I mean, it turned out uh, it was it was very positive because we knew each other very well. Uh, we broke up in the meantime. Uh, actually, in the beginning of the company, when when things were were uh, uh, were still undefined uh, in terms of of business. Uh, but we still we work together. We made a company very successful. We and, and knowing each other that well was an advantage. Um, so I would say that there's a couple of things that you know are not ideal, but it doesn't mean they don't work. I think the companies that end up doing very well are normally the outliers. So I hope by investing in solo founders and uh, we don't have couples, but but those uh, uh, remote teams is another is another one. Let's see how things turn out. <laughs> I think I would say there's no rules. So maybe I, I push on the second question, which is the role of a venture in Europe, in Europe and and where you think that is currently. I mean, you, the good thing is that you've had a lot of exposure to U.S. investors, so you mm-hmm. can contrast. And of course, now you're involved with a Portuguese-led um, fund uh, uh, investing across Europe, and maybe you have a unique perspective or opinion about what needs to change and what might be a strength versus a weakness. I think more and more innovation comes from everywhere. So there's a lot of, I think, like in in Europe, like you have a, like a couple of big funds, but the companies still need help to get to a stage where they can be funded by. Where they can get a Series A or or uh, get funding from these investors. So I I would say innovation starts very local, and you need to have uh, local players helping companies do these first steps. Um, and that's what's still not very polished in Europe in general. I mean, now you have some accelerators uh, establishing here, but also these accelerator business now it's it's very spread, and everyone has an accelerator. And, 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 and maybe most companies don't work an accelerator anymore because they worked at a startup. They've seen how, how, how it works uh, and they just feel they, they don't need that anymore. So I would say the early stage needs a lot of work. That's why you need local founders to help companies raise the first money, tell them the way. And then there's investors in Europe to do C to Series A. But then again, uh, most of the times you need to go to the U.S., 
which has advantages and disadvantages, but that's that's how I see things working. It's not ideal. I mean, uh, even even expanding to an European market is a pain. Um, so so also that's not the, the the default role. We have we have a joke in Portugal. We say that innovation comes from the north of Europe and then it stops in Spain. But we don't even have Amazon, and that's that's a result of the European geography, the the number of countries we have, the different languages. So when we try to put Europe in a bucket. It doesn't work the same in all in all geographies, but I would say we have these local. More and more, we have local players. Early stage is local, and then uh, we have a layer of money and expertise that can either help you scale to the US or to Asia or to other geographies. And that layer is a little bit more mature than the early stage. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, we always like to wrap up with an opportunity for either asking a fun question or for you to plug something that you're really passionate about. Um, maybe I'll ask a very simple um, and fun question. What superpower do you think you would love to have that would fundamentally change your life? And maybe if you want to plug something that you think uh, is underrepresented and you wish that would get more attention. Uh, superpower... Like the the thing that came to my mind was being as naive as I was when I started TalkDesk, because being naive makes you believe that you can do everything and there's no impossible. Um, and when you grow up a little bit and you've seen more, I think you lose that 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 magic of uh, uh, looking at things and 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 just being like super positive, uh, which I am by default. Um, so, so that's my, that's my, that's a superpower I would love to have. I would love to be a little bit more, more naive forever because that, that, that makes you curious and that makes you work hard to figure things out. And one thing that you would, you wish to plug that may not be well represented? I mean, I, 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 I will probably be to be obvious, but there's no, there's, there's not enough uh, uh, things being done to, to get more diversity in tech. Uh, not, uh, uh, I would say it's a funnel problem. So, uh, and I think the problem is more in, in, in schools, in primary schools, in, in, in kindergartens, and, and in families that end up like uh, uh, kids are very biased towards. Uh, 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 male and female kind of things. So we need to be very aware and teach our uh, the next generations uh, to lose a little bit of of these biases. I was very fortunate to to get into tech because my family really supported that uh, um, because they they don't distinguish between man's job and woman's job. And I wish families were a little bit more like that in general. So a call out for families that have kids and that, that are raising the next generation uh, to try to be very conscious about not biasing kids uh, so, so we can have more diversity in the industry. Fair enough. So with that, thank you very much, Christina. Thank you, Carlos. Great pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.